Dead Air by Scott Overton. Previously in Dead Air, while riding in a charity snowmobile rally, radio personality Lee Garrett has found himself under attack by a rider hurling gasoline bombs who finally leaves Lee for dead. Now here's chapter 18. At least this time they didn't keep you in the hospital. Davis looked up from her notes to see if the remark had sparked any humor in Lee's eyes. They stayed coldly blank. He finished packing his microphone into the case they used for location broadcasts. A mental hospital soon, if this keeps up. The doctors said my knee's just bruised and the shoulder is a bad sprain. He was supposed to be wearing a sling, but that would have prompted far too many questions from co-workers and listeners. He shifted on his stool and winced at a shot of pain. I don't think I'm cut out for this shit. In the movies, the hero just gets a gun and goes after the bad guys. Me? I wouldn't even have a clue who to go after. But I'll tell you one thing, he said in a lowered voice, husky with anger. If you were to tell me right now who that bastard riding the snowmobile was and handed me your gun, I'd blow the fucker away without a qualm. Then a made-for-TV smile flicked onto his face as he realized one of the customers in the restaurant was looking at him. An older lady, probably a listener, there to see him do his show. He raised his cup of coffee to her and drank a sip. It was only lukewarm, but he managed to swallow without making a face. What a day to have to do his show at McDonald's. He'd spent most of Saturday night at the hospital, and even a Sunday in bed hadn't restored his energy. It had taken every ounce of willpower to focus on his job, greet people, play the clown, badger customers into joining him on the air. All things considered, the show had gone well. It had to. Ellis had hit the roof and insisted he was off the air until the case was solved. He'd reminded her that Monday's show was committed to the biggest McDonald's in town, one of the station's best accounts. She'd still balked. He'd had to beg. I don't think you should watch any Charles Bronson movies for a while, Davis said, and don't even think about touching this gun. It's never been fired outside a range, and I intend to keep it that way. Are you good with it? Good enough. My big brother and I sometimes have friendly competitions. He's a cop, too, RCMP drug unit. Two in the same family. What, was your father a cop? A fireman. Scared my mother half to death, knowing he was the first to charge into a burning building and the last to come out. Is there a family gene that urges you to help people or just flirt with danger? She gave him a sour look and looked as if she might change the subject, but went on. It caught up with my father. A burning ceiling came down on him. His buddies got him out, but his lungs were never right after that. He had to take a disability pension. That came closer to killing him than fire ever had. Then he got an idea that turned him around, opened a store to sell home fire safety equipment. She smiled at the memory. Anyway, he tried to make us promise, my brother and me, that we wouldn't go into any line of work as dangerous as that. I don't get it. You did it to spite him? No, not at all, she said. We just couldn't help it. I guess it was his example when we were growing up. I think he finally understood. I'm not so sure my mother ever has. Can't say that I blame her. Lee nodded his thanks to Shelley, the station hostess, as she set two fresh cups of coffee in front of them. After a few tentative sips, the detective looked up at him. So how is the station going to handle Saturday's incident? 
The press release from the OPP had almost nothing in it. A snowmobile explosion, no one seriously injured, no mention of any attack. I suppose they only have my word for that. For once, their tendency to be tight-lipped worked in our favor. I'd appreciate it if your department would keep things to themselves, too. I'll try, but we can't cover up the facts. Not asking you to. It'll come out eventually, but hopefully by then it'll be old news. Your attacker will know by now that you survived. Couldn't be helped. They would have found out anyway. He sipped slowly at the coffee and watched to make sure no customers were close enough to overhear. You think the investigators will get anywhere with this? No witnesses except the man and his grandchild who saw you racing. Black snowmobile, hundreds of those around. If this guy is part of a group, he'll have no trouble establishing an alibi. Probably didn't register with the snowarama either. And he picked a weapon that's virtually impossible to trace. Yeah, why a Molotov cocktail, for God's sake? The only thing that saved me was that he needed to stop to light the wick. If he'd had a hunting rifle, I would have been meat. That has to mean they're still trying to make these attacks look like accidents. Create some doubt, at least. A number of things can make a snowmobile catch fire, especially if you run off the trail into trees. The downed power cable at your place could have been taken for storm damage. By the way, all of the people we identified as possible suspects had alibis for that night. Even Lenny Schwartz? According to his son. Nephew. Paul's his nephew. Okay. Paul says he heard his uncle listening to a Leafs game all evening, made microwave popcorn just before the third period. That still gives him the first two periods to go out and come back, or could he have done it when Paul was asleep? Davis shook her head. Turns out a lady across the street from you did see somebody climbing the pole sometime in the middle of the evening, thought it was a repairman because of the storm. I can't figure it out. Lee looked deflated. It's like you said before. They should be trying to wipe me out in a way that makes them look like hot shit, and then crowing about it. Why aren't they? Count your blessings, Davis shrugged. Two reasons I can think of. Maybe they think as long as there's some doubt about these incidents, we won't throw police protection around you and make their job harder. Which you're now going to do. The chief insisted. Just two guys. I don't get why you never asked for it yourself. I don't want these bastards to just lie low for a while. I need you to catch them. So you stay in the line of fire without letting us protect you, but count on us to catch them the moment they slip up? You really have been watching too many movies. And I don't want that responsibility. Come to think of it, why haven't you taken a leave of absence till this thing blows over? Clear out and let me do my job. Now you sound like my boss. Frankly, I don't have anywhere else to go. And... What if my listeners realize they can live without me? He tried to keep his tone light, but he couldn't bring himself to look into her eyes. After a while, he cleared his throat. So tell me the other reason these guys haven't gone public. You said there were two. The other reason is that so far, they failed. If they'd gone off about your imminent death in media communiques or some such crap, they'd look like a pretty sad bunch of bunglers by now. She looked uncomfortable. If they ever do succeed... Then they'll go to the media. She swirled the last of the coffee in her cup and drank it down. Lee nodded slowly. I guess I'll never know if you're right. By unspoken agreement, the three dozen skaters at the Tuesday night family skate went around the arena ice surface in the same direction. 
so the mental comparisons to merging into rush-hour traffic were only because of Lee's rusty legs. He moved onto the ice like an octogenarian, his genetic memory rebelling at the concept of a frictionless surface. That was part of the reason he'd taken so long to lace his skates. The other was the opportunity it gave him to watch Candace. She no longer had the figure-skating costume she'd retired at fifteen, but she'd found a comparable ensemble with a pleated white skirt still well above the knee. There was no sport like figure-skating to mold a woman's legs and gluteals into their most attractive shape, and Lee thought it was too bad she wasn't the short-skirt-and-spike-heels type. As he watched her glide over the ice, he could see her confidence returning. The first tentative rotations to skate backward became short spins and prolonged S-curves, Hands that dangled limply began to float and swoop, like birds circling a sapling in search of a place to rest. The functionality of counterbalance transformed into artful motion. He'd much rather watch her than embarrass himself by joining her on the rink surface. By the end of the first circuit, he'd managed to stiffen his ankles. When his back began to straighten soon after, he felt a little less envy for the three-year-old who was holding on to her mother's hand for support. He'd played a lot of hockey when he was younger, but the old habits came back slowly. He made a wobbly pivot and glided backward, his forty-year-old muscles struggling to remember the moves. Glancing up, he saw Candace, nodding with encouragement. He felt like the three-year-old and turned to hide a blush. Candace glided up beside him. I always forget how enjoyable this is. How often is always? Maybe once a year. Sometimes one or two of us at CNIB take clients for a skate. We hold their hands. Maybe that's what I need. She smiled and gave his hand a squeeze, then glided away into a gentle pirouette while he stepped through the end-zone curve and back onto the straightaway. Her face was a study in release, maybe even transcendence. He wasn't feeling anything so pleasant. Since Monday morning his throat had been scratchy, and by Tuesday afternoon his nose had begun to burn with the onset of a cold. Cold FX usually worked for him but it was too soon to tell if it would this time. The damp, chilled air of the arena was harsh in the back of his throat. Before long, his shoulder began to ache, too, and it wouldn't let him hold his hands together behind his back. When he turned his skates for a quick stop, a dart of pain shot up from his knee. He was pushing too hard, too soon. No way he was going to be able to play in Matt's hockey game. After a couple of dozen circuits, he skated to the boards, waving at Candace to keep going. He climbed to one of the benches and sat watching her, but shadows drifted like clouds into his mind. The first few days after he'd nearly frozen to death, he'd had a new appreciation for life, at least for a while. Now he looked inward and sifted through fragments of emotion that lay like scattered shards. Turning them over one by one, he found them dulled. He tried to define his feelings, but they were muted, limp, slippery. He couldn't get any of them in a firm grasp. That part of his mind was a watercolor palette left out in the rain, dulled by fear. When he was a teenager, he'd connected fear with death and dismemberment, which was strange because teenagers, especially teenaged boys, thought they were invincible and drove like maniacs to prove it. They lived in dread of an unwitting social misstep or an undisguisable pimple, but they didn't acknowledge that as fear. They yearned for the day when they would be fully confident adults, blissfully unaware that there was no such thing. Lee knew that someone was trying to kill him, but that knowledge hadn't brought fear into his heart, because fear already had a permanent home there. 
He knew the fear of a bank calling to cancel his credit, the fear of a cancer diagnosis, the fear of losing his job, not only the loss of income that it would bring, but even worse, the loss of self-worth. Adulthood had brought his greatest joy, his children, and also his greatest fear, the chance of losing them. He knew that he'd foolishly squandered countless hours that he could have spent in their company, but at least they were still alive, still making him proud with every venture they undertook. If anything happened to one of them, he didn't know how he would survive it. There was another fear. Love. New love at his stage of life was as frightening as it had ever been with its demand to lay the soul bare. The threat of death was a terrible fear, yes, but only one of many. He reached into his pocket for a Kleenex. His cold symptoms seemed to be getting worse by the minute. He'd feel like a jerk if he gave the bug to Candace. He should have stayed home, but then his head wasn't calling the shots. Two preteen boys played a clumsy game of tag, dark in their winter jackets. A young girl in a bright aquamarine turtleneck used a wooden chair as a prop to supplement her wobbly legs. A twenty-something couple holding hands wore matching sweaters, probably wedding gifts, with brightly colored leaves that contrasted badly with the gaudy inks of the rink-board ads. He tried to smile at Candace as she went by, but he wasn't sure his face obeyed. She looked to be enjoying herself, even attempting a small jump that was only a little shaky on the landing. The pleated skirt barely hid the lovely curves beneath. The cold air made her complexion glow, and with her graceful movements, he tried to remember the last time he'd seen anything so beautiful. He felt a touch of regret when she finally came off the ice. "'What happened? Didn't you feel like skating after all?' she asked. "'It's my knee. Um, an old problem that acts up once in a while.' He winced as she bumped his bad arm. He'd have to tell her about the attack sooner or later, and the longer he left it, the harder it would be, he knew that. But he was afraid, afraid it would scare her away. He surveyed her long legs as she bent to untie her skates. Enjoy the view? She didn't even look up. He thought about a denial, but laughed instead. I guess I'm not a subtle guy. You're a guy. What else needs to be said? Her smile said she didn't mind. Want some hot chocolate? I spotted a coffee shop just down the street. Sure. With his growing sinus headache, the light was beginning to hurt his eyes. It was a struggle to make conversation. Candace bravely tested topic after topic, but his replies were little more than grunts. A waitress brushed back a stray lock of long brown hair as she asked whether they'd like anything else. A hint that their table would soon be needed. It was almost 9.30, Time for the after-movie crowd to start arriving. Lee looked at Candace, who shook her head. No thanks. He watched the young woman turn and noticed a stain at the back of her right hip where she'd never see it until she took the apron off. Passed a sauce or some reddish donut filling. She'd be embarrassed later, wondering how long it had been there and how many people had seen it. The thought saddened him. They didn't talk much in the car. When they pulled up to her apartment building, Candace put a hand on his arm. Lee, is there something wrong? Something you want to say? What do you mean? Something about us? Why? You've been distant, uncomfortable. She bit at her lip and took a measured breath. Are you having second thoughts about this? About you and me? I know neither of us was sure... He suddenly understood what she was saying and an icy hand clutched at his chest. Why would you think that? Her voice was like a little girl's. 
You didn't want to be close to me. You, you didn't even try to kiss me. She attempted a laugh, but it faltered, and she turned her face away. God, no, no, it's nothing like that. He reached to take her hand, gripped it hard. Why was he such an idiot? I think I'm coming down with a cold, and I don't want to give it to you. And at the rink, I guess I was just feeling a little old, that's all. Please, you're the best, you're the best thing. The words failed him. His throat clamped shut. She looked into his eyes, and he willed her to see his naked soul. A cool hand touched his cheek, and the fingers drew over his skin to his lips. There was a hard set to her jaw, but a tear glistened on an eyelash. "'Lee Garrett, if you ever neglect to kiss me again, I don't care what you've got. You'll wish it was fatal.' Then her mouth was on his, hard and hungry. They kissed and laughed and squeezed together as if to burst the very molecules of air between. Fear was released in a wave of heat, and the flame that remained was strong and pure. That's Chapter 18. But for the rest of this episode, I thought I'd give you a look into the radio business that's usually known only to insiders. I was a morning show host for most of the 30 years I was in broadcasting, and there are things we think we know about radio that probably aren't true anymore. Like that feeling of connection. We always know that there's a live body at the end of that radio signal just for us. Except nowadays that often isn't true. You see, radio stations play everything from computer software, the IDs, the commercials, the music, and we announcers can record our parts into the computer, too. We can do that a few hours ahead, a few days ahead. We can do it from another city. So why would you want to do that? Well, it all comes down to the bottom line and saving the company money. If one radio announcer can record his show for two or three different cities, just localizing the odd break or two here and there... That saves the company a lot in salaries. Now, you don't want to do that too far ahead of time because if something big happens in the news, you don't want to be the only radio station not talking about it. As a listener, how do you know if your favorite radio announcer is really there in person, right then? Well, do they give the current local time and temperature? Do they mention traffic issues for that day in your city? If you think about it a little bit, you might be able to figure out a few more ways to tell. Here's another misconception about the radio business. The idea that the radio announcer on the air gets to pick the songs they play. Nothing could be further from the truth, believe me. Radio is very much a business, and broadcasting companies don't take chances like that. And as with so many other things in our lives, radio stations are programmed using computers. So the radio station program director and music director very carefully pick the songs they're going to play according to the industry charts, maybe some audience research. The flow of the music is also very important, so they carefully consider what songs should play back-to-back -back in order to get the right mix of the age of the song, the tempo, whether it's a male or female artist, the type of artist, and yes, how often each song should play in a day or over a week. It's really a science, and there are a lot of parameters that can be programmed into the software. Then the computer schedules the music for the day, and we radio announcers pretty much just play what's there. Playing our own favorites would be a quick path to a short career. So what about request shows? 
A lot of radio stations have request lunch hours, for instance, and they can do that. They can jump in and replace a song that's scheduled with a song you ask for. They record you onto the computer and play your voice back when they've got the song ready to go. But the rest of the time, it's the computers that drive the bus. Of course, you can find out a lot more about the radio industry from Dead Air. And our next episode is Chapter 19, as Valentine's Day doesn't mean a smooth love life for Lee Garrett, but he tries hard to grasp the good things in his life before his unknown enemies can snatch them away. If you want your own copy of Dead Air, it's available in lots of formats and lots of places. Find out more at scottoverton.ca right now, and even sign up to get news about my writing. Thanks again to Audionautics.com for the music and to you for listening. I'm Scott Overton.